Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Name Three Songs. I'm Sarah Fagan. I'm Jenna Million, and this is the podcast where we challenge sexism in the music industry and empower fangirls. Because let's be honest, fangirls knew about that band way before you did. And if you stick around long enough, we'll also let you in on some new music the girls are already crazy about. And before we start, this is just your friendly reminder that if you are missing Name Three Songs, During your week, after you've listened to our Sunday episodes, you can come get bonus content over at our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash name3songs. We have bonus episodes, a Discord server, and so much more fun stuff. So today we have a really fun, really exciting episode. Sarah, what are we getting into today? So we are truly playing a game of Connect the Dots today that I feel like should have already been played, which is always quite fun and exciting. And we're also talking about something more positive than usual, which again is very exciting because we're talking about the role that the girl groups of the 50s and early 60s played in really inspiring not just rock music, but punk music. And I feel like that is a sentence that a lot of people are going to be confused and intrigued by, which was exactly how we felt. Because it is such an intriguing topic, because there is so much historical context that comes into play about how girl groups came to be and how music became something that was a cultural movement rather than just something that existed. And a lot of it has to do with just the fact that wars were ending and starting and teenagers were given like this access to exist as their own (laughs) like culture of humans, which is quite exciting because they had this opportunity to really figure out who they were as humans and be allowed to be teens and rebel and grow up and figure out what the hell is going on with their lives instead of going straight from children to adults. So there was now this whole new genre of age basically that came to be and music played a huge role in that. And as we've talked about in past episodes, girl groups had a huge hand in changing the idea of music and the way music sounded and really inspired so many people to come and were kind of forgotten gotten in a sense as in like their role in the game of music was kind of just forgotten whereas their music has always existed but the importance of it was kind of just pushed to the side so that white men could shine as per usual and so to have this discussion we have on an incredible guest today so Jenna would you like to introduce everybody to them? Today we are talking to Kurt Suchman a freelance writer covering music food culture and queer topics they've written for sites including Pace, Consequence of Sound, Shondaland and Extra. Currently, they're based in Seattle and they're often found reminding everyone they're from New Jersey. And we just want to give a big thank you to Kurt because Kurt did bring this topic to us and it's a great conversation. So without further ado, hi Kurt, so nice to have you today. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jenna and Sarah. I'm really excited to talk today. 
We're so happy you're here and so happy that you brought us this topic because ever since we started learning more about the girl groups of the 50s, I feel like we've been seeing a pattern of so many bands being inspired by them that you never would have ever imagined Um, because girls doing anything (laughs) in, in the 50s that wasn't just staying at home was definitely outside the norms, even though you wouldn't really expect that based off of how popular and important the girl groups have been the history of music but that's something that I feel like has been contextualized as time has gone on and historians have started covering these people because at the time they definitely weren't celebrated for the role that they played in their effects on music because obviously women never got (laughs) never get the respect they deserve at the time that they're having their success but thankfully some of them have gotten to see that success in this day and age and so with that being said I feel like for most people, there is a knowledge of how these girl groups inspired a lot of rock bands, specifically like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, because they both have talked a lot about the Shirelles inspiring them. But I think especially for us, like we didn't realize the role that these girl groups played in affecting the punk scene, which I think are two things that most people would never connect to each other unless they're a fan and they do their research, you know? And so for you, obviously, you're very passionate about this. So for you, like what the passion and the interest in the domino effect of these early era music girl groups really affecting and being a huge inspiration for the punk movement specifically in New York. All the music that I like grew up with was from my parents record collection. So like when I was really little, I still have a really huge obsession with girl groups. Be My Baby is like one of the first songs I ever remember hearing. So like I always had a like fondness for the era. And then I remember in like middle school and high school when I started developing my own musical taste a little bit, I got really into punk music too and specifically early era New York punk rock like the Ramones and Blondie I don't know people always thought that it was weird that I would like just be listening to what they saw as like two different sides of the spectrum it's like oh super sweet poppy girl groups and like you know really hardcore punk rock but I never thought it was weird like it always just seemed very natural for me because you know they just went hand in hand like they had similar sounds and it was just something that like kind of always made sense to me and then talking about it more so afterwards it didn't really I guess make as much sense to everybody the connections weren't supernatural so that's why I'm so interested in this topic topic is just like not to be like it's obvious but I'm all like oh like you know if you you can make the connection it's not so big of a stretch as you would think. I love that because it definitely isn't because once we started doing research on this and discussing it with you I feel like everything truly fell into place where I'm like oh shit that makes so much sense in the same way of when Jenna and I originally were doing research on how black women affected rock and roll in America and just rock and roll everywhere it all makes so much sense because then when you listen back to songs that you've listened to in the past you're like oh wow (laughs) like you can hear those sounds and you can hear those things and I think it's just really interesting because also in context with the times obviously and we say this a lot about how especially in like the rock era so many things happened so perfectly in the exact right order for that rock era to even happen and I feel like most of the 50s to the 70s everything truly fell into place in the exact right way for those things to be able to happen the way that they did 
did, which is just really intriguing because so much of how music is everlasting and kind of you can listen to something from the 50s today and it can feel very similar to music that's coming out now. It's like the context to how or why that music was happening or how and why these scenes were coming up and all of the things that were in play in order for that music to like have that success or have the interest has a lot to do with what was happening in the news and just in day-to-day life. And when you say that, it's like when you're listening to music and you can still hear you know, the connections of like bands from like their 60s area and these girl groups to today. I can make those connections. Like it's also important to note that these girl groups have had like a bit of a renaissance, like on TikTok. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Laws walking in the sand that oh, no sound. And like Leslie Gore, it's my party and you don't own me. It's like all over TikTok. So there's a huge interest in them, whether or not that these people like actually realize who made these songs. Yeah. No, and then it's really cool when you figure it out, which is amazing. So in speaking of that historical context, you know that we love to contextualize things for you guys because it's never just about the music. There's always outside factors that are contributing to this. So we're going to take it back, do a little history lesson, and talk about the golden age of capitalism, which was from the time period of 1950s until 1975. And this happened in the post-World War II economic expansion. Basically, what we saw was higher productivity during the war being continued. There was infrastructure and military spending, wealth redistribution, there's international cooperation and innovations in manufacturing, which led to a period of prosperity. We see a lot of more families moving out to the suburbs, having their own homes, having more of a spendable income, having time for leisurely activities. And this also gave way to the counterculture of the 1960s. You know, when we have the opposition of the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, sexual revolution, the beginning of second wave feminism. And so there really is starting to be this era of this different middle class that we really didn't see before, which so ironically led to the birth of the teenager. We're going to explain this for you guys, but it's really funny to say this, like the birth (laughs) of the teenager, because it sounds so bizarre. You're like, teenagers didn't exist before 1950. Yes, that is true. Teenagers did not not exist. They were just child labor and then adults. (laughs) Those were the options. Child labor and adult labor. There's no teenage labor. Yeah, literally though, because it would be like one day you're a kid and then the next day you like come home from playing out in the mud and your mom's like so um this 50 year old man has asked for your hand in marriage we are selling you off <laughs> okay um, not exactly yeah, like that I don't, it's no. just it's just funny no i mean like <laughs> sometimes like that but not not exact not to contextualize things with fiddler on the roof but i am going to (laughs) because that that is all i think about when we're doing this and the teenagers didn't exist before of it's like them being like oh the butcher laser wolf would like to marry you and it's like this gross old man but he's a butcher and he has money and he wants to like marry their child and then all of a sudden she's like supposed to be a bride and so i think that that's a lot of what was going on it's like you're expected because life expectancy was like maybe 55 60 it's like okay you have to get married young and have kids and if we can get you to marry a man who has money or a career or whatever amazing sounds great but when like money's not something that people are worrying about so much there isn't that period of like oh no I have to marry my daughter off now otherwise we'll have to continue taking care of her because now these teens can have jobs and they can just have like a self-worth to some degree yeah and it was also more popular at this time to like go to college as like an 
in a secondary option versus just like getting married or versus just going straight to the workforce. So to give a definition of how the term teenager came about, we have a really great article called Children in Progressive Era America that we found on the Digital Public Library of America. And it says the term teenager was first introduced to the American public in the 1940s as a moniker coined by advertising executives looking to sell their products to a new audience. The concept of a distinct youth culture had begun to develop in the 1920s, but throughout the Great Depression and World War II, young Americans were expected to put aside any frivolous activities or unnecessary spending for the sake of the nation's well-being. So this is why when we have post-World War II, we have this economic expansion. Now teenagers have time for leisurely activities. They have a bit of extra spending money, and this is being funneled directly into music culture. Music culture is becoming a part of people's lives, and this is where we see the culture of rebellion. But I do think it's very funny that it's like teenagers were invented by the advertising industry because at this point (laughs) what wasn't invented by the advertising industry (laughs) the thing is is like with the marketing stuff and them creating stuff it was like the marketing campaigns when they decided a diamond engagement rings were like oh you have to spend a month's salary on the engagement ring which was like how they marketed it and that still stands to this day that people think that that's what you're supposed to do which i just think is wild and so the fact that teenagers became this marketing idea and there were these other just interesting articles so another example was that the british newspaper archive which is like a site that basically goes through old magazines and newspapers and then writes articles based off of that, which is so interesting, was saying that like when teens were first mentioned in print, a lot of it had to do with fashion and being like, oh, look, you have more kind of you time. So now you can dress and have like a style that's specifically for teens, which I found really intriguing because obviously like that for a long time sort of followed through where there was like a specific teen style. But I feel like now that we've sort of just started repeating fashion that sort of disappeared completely but for quite some time like there was a specific look to teenagers but also on the capitalist point there was also a feature that the New Yorker had on their site from a past issue from 1958 which stated that teens were making like $10 a week from having jobs outside of just like their real life and with that happening teens on their own were spending nine and a half billion dollars a year just from making $10 a week and like having time to use that disposable income on culture and stuff. And I think in context to the music scene and as we were saying, teens being able to socialize and do other things, I think that's really interesting because as it's been proven now, so many teenagers spend a huge chunk of their money on music. And while we don't have actual stats to prove that was happening in that time, it feels like it must have been just based off of how popular music was and how much that was part of the culture. So I think it's just this really intriguing thing to think about how these teens have disposable income. They're spending it on music, obviously based off of just stories of them going to concerts. And then teens went from being like this new exciting thing for marketing to something that adults were like, my rebellious teenager, they're doing things and they're hanging out with people that don't look like them. And they're spending all this money and doing all this crazy stuff. And so it's just crazy how they created something essentially to make more money. And it did just that. But then adults were like, why are they not acting like I was? And it's like, because they weren't dying from working in a factory. (laughs) They didn't get polio because they're not the same people. Like, I don't know. It's really interesting to see like with the golden age of capitalism and I guess like the rise of everything becoming a commodity. Like how many times could you even buy music before that? 
Whereas like now you had money to spend on it. So now that we've contextualized, you know, what was happening historically, the fact that teenagers have extra time, extra money, and the interest to put into the music scene, we see the birth of the girl group. So Kurt, do you want to give us a little intro into what exactly girl groups were? So when we're talking about girl groups, there's been girl groups throughout history. But when we talk about a girl group today, like we're talking about specifically these girl groups of the 1950s and 60s, these girl groups of, you know, there'd be a group of young girls, usually about teenagers, and they were just like singing in really close harmony together. This started basically after the death of rock and roll, as in like, you know, Chuck Berry and Bill Haley in the comics in 50s. And it's in between the death of rock and roll and the British invasion that happened in the mid 60s with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So in this like little chunk of time in like the late 50s to like about 1964, there were tons and tons of girl groups. And girl groups would usually, again, sing in close harmony together. They'd usually be dressed in a certain way. And these were usually built out of a lot of people that knew each other from school, from their either close family members or something like that. Like all of these girls usually hung out together, had, you know, some kind of connection before the music business got involved. They would just be like singing together. So that's kind of you know the type of girl groups you're talking about right now yeah and another thing that you had noted is that the music was a mixture of black doo-wop rock and roll and white pop and so it's really funny that we say like nowadays like oh there's so much genre bending and like people never did that before like no the girl <laughs> groups are doing it way back like it's always been a thing but the first really big girl group that we see is the Shirelles. they formed in 1957 and the other girl groups today we're talking about the ronettes and the shangri-las they came a little bit later in the early 60s and so the Shirelles really set the blueprint for what was possible with girl groups. They consisted of four schoolmates, Shirley Owens, Doris Coley, Addie, also known as Mickey Harris, and Beverly Lee. And they started working with Luther Dixon, who's a songwriter, helped them rise to fame with hits like Tonight's the Night. And they in total had seven top 20 hits over a 10 year period. And so the reason why the Shirelles were so unique, so different, so popular and rose to popularity is because they were an all black girl group. And a lot of people didn't know they were black. They catered to white audiences, their voices you couldn't tell, which is hilariously funny that we're racially profiling people by their voices. I mean, as far as how they presented themselves, they were quite polished because they did want that respectability from both black and white audiences. And remember, this is at a time when America was still very segregated. And I also think it's important to note that at the time when the Shirelles were coming up, all of these girl groups were kind of focused around the same spot in New York, which was the Brill Building, which was this one building in New York City where all of these songwriters gathered and it was a lot of session musicians and they would basically just go out to the outer boroughs and they would scout all of these girl groups and these family or, you know, close-knit musical relationships and they would just find them at talent shows. And a lot of these kids were either immigrants or super low-income kids that were always told that they wouldn't have star power. Like, you know, somebody like as legendary as Carol King, who wrote a lot of these girl group songs, like Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow is one of her big ones. And these were the people that were like, they got in and they'd be like, hey, you have talent, you can write a great song, but nobody's going to want to look at you. No one's going to want to buy your records. So they would take these songwriters and they would give it to girl groups like the Shirelles. And the marketing was very much about like kind of hiding their identity and just, you know, trying to make it as accessible as possible, you know, for the audience to really connect with it. 
I mean, the thing that is so interesting about the Shirelles, and we talked about this in our episode about like how African-American women really created the blueprint for rock and roll music of the 60s and 70s. But at the time, they were huge. Like people were as obsessed with them as the Beatles, like in Black Diamond Queens by Maureen Mahone. Like she talks with people and they're explaining how it truly felt like Beatlemania when people would go out to see them, which I think is so interesting because I feel like for a time period, they were kind of forgotten, but not on purpose. It's like people knew their songs, but they were like, who are the Shirelles? What do they look like after the fact, like after their prime or whatever you want to call it but it is really intriguing that they played such a role and yet these artists kind of allowed them to be forgotten in some way but like it wasn't their like I don't I don't even know how to explain it because they were always yelling about it and like covering their songs especially the Beatles would talk a lot about how the Shirelles inspired them throughout their careers which I think is incredible for number one for them to cover their songs but also to (laughs) admit publicly like yeah these women are why we exist and how we came up with a lot of the sounds that we have but the other thing that was really intriguing about how Maureen was writing about the Shirelles in her book was that she was saying that they had like this every girl voice so people felt comfortable like singing along with them and they were like oh I could do this and I think in the thought of punk and the sounds of punk vocalists and all that I feel like the fact that they did pull from these girl groups and that there was that collective idea of that quote-unquote every girl voice because it's weird to be like oh there's nothing special about it because there definitely was but for some reason I guess at the time it felt more accessible to everyday listeners obviously I don't know because I wasn't there but it just is an interesting way number one to just write about it in a book of being like oh like the vocalizing was accessible to listeners to (laughs) sing along to because I'm like, wouldn't you sing along no matter what? But I think also, as I said, like in conjunction to punk and the style of singing, that is an interesting thing to think about of if there was that idea of like, oh, like (laughs) you don't have to have crazy vocal chops to be a singer. I feel like that might have a play in that too. To me, it's a bit of the same ethos. I think it's like important to note that it's like not so much that they were accessible and that this music wasn't anything special to it. It's more so the fact that, you know, when we talk about the Shirelles and nobody thought that they sounded black and like that made it more accessible. It's like audiences thought that they were buying into this image of the good all-American girls. This was definitely something that you saw a little bit. There's like songs from the era like A Sailor Boy by the Chiffons that's about loving your like naval brat boyfriend and how I'm going to stay with him forever even when he's overseas getting killed in Vietnam or whatever war is going on. So that's like definitely something that marketing executives definitely like tried to play into like oh we have these group of girls as American as apple pie they sound so sweet and they're talking about the boys that they love so tried to make it not so much innocuous but it definitely had like that sweet all-american girl vibe that they're trying to buy into and I think one of the more interesting things about the connection between the Shirelles and then these girl groups that came a few years later is that they saw the impact the Shirelles had and they saw what was possible for girl groups and the insane popularity they had. I mean, leading us into the Ronettes and the Shangri-Las, they've literally recognized the impact that the Shirelles had even for them. So the lead singer of the Ronettes said that when we saw the Shirelles walk on stage with their wide party dresses, we went in the opposite direction and squeezed our body into the tightest skirts we could find. So I think it's really cool that sonically they were such an inspiration, but then the Ronettes saw what they were doing. They're like, we want to be different. And the way they differentiated themselves was being like the edgy, rebellious punk version of the trails. 
And it's kind of cool to see how in that point, Ronnie Spector and the other Ronettes were able to look at the Shirelles and be like, okay, I love what you're doing here. Like all of this close-knit vocal harmony. And I guess that's like the first point where you notice them tweaking it into like something more rebellious when the Ronettes were like, oh, look at all your pretty white dresses. You're so clean and pure. Here's my like black tight form-fitting, like show off all of my curves, big bouffant hairstyles and all these things. These were things that were seen as like a luxury and because of that made it more rebellious in a way you know like giving yourself over to like you know whatever your selfish like wants and desires are as opposed to like we were saying before where so much of life before the teenager was just I don't know serve your country and your family like and that's it yeah I mean it is interesting because as Jenna was saying earlier about this golden age of capitalism it is that point where there are more than just the ruling class and peasants there's so much in between sort of wiggle room and based off of our research and just reading it kind of feels like this is also that start of kind of judging people for doing things that you assume are outside their means which I feel like is why specifically like the Ronettes were viewed as this rebellious girl group and there was this really really interesting article on NPR by Hillary Ashton in 2018 called It's Time to Recognize the Ronettes as Rock and Roll Pioneers. And she wrote, the way the Ronettes constructed their image against the grain of demureness expected of women is part of this rock rebellion. Teenage girls in the early 1960s and especially black teenage girls were often expected to be demure and docile. Pop music was meant to signify good behavior, acceptable for family listening around the living room record player. Rock, however, even in its early stages was sinuous and loud and full of entendre and hidden or, or suppressed stories. So black artists pioneered the sound and the freedom of rock and roll at the height of American segregation. And so I just feel like it's really interesting the way that Hillary contextualized that of like the idea of pop music was like, oh, they're going to be demure and docile and they're just going to like sing happy songs that the family can listen to. And then the Ronettes were like, Haha, you thought. And so everybody sort of referred to them as like this quote unquote bad girl of girl groups, which I think is just really interesting because if you listen to their songs, they're not singing anything wild and crazy, but that's with 2021 music in mind, you know? But if you go back and you look at their music and you put it contextually with other music that girl groups or just women were putting out, they definitely were covering topics that were a bit more like going into that girl singing from their diary sort of situation, which I think people were kind of like, wait, women have thoughts and feelings and it's so much deeper than just them fawning over like the football player, you know? It's so interesting intriguing that something now that feels so normal was back then viewed as just like the super rebellious act because they were wearing what we now see as a normal outfit for pop girlies to be wearing and like normal looks for them to be doing. And to think about it at the time, you know, even like as these girl groups were singing pretty innocuous things in this day and age, like just to hear women singing about their business and to like singing about feelings. So, you know, the music itself is not very raw, but the lyrics are. And like you kind of just said, there's definitely like the idea of just like ripped out of the pages, like a teenage girl's diary. But like that was rebellion at the time, you know, at that time period, you had to be buttoned up. Like you didn't talk about feelings or stuff that was going on in your life. Not to mention that, again, going back to capitalism, 
all of this was supposed to be marketed at white audiences. Like yeah. they were not planning. There wasn't like a black audience or like a Latinx audience or anything like that. So it was just, we're going to market this to white people. So a lot of parents had a problem that their kids were listening to all this music by black people. I always think of like in Hairspray where they're like, are you listening to that race music? Definitely. I mean, also in this NPR article, they have a quote from Ronnie herself saying, we may have looked like street girls, but I think the audience could tell that under all the makeup, we were really just three innocent teenagers. And also important to note that they were actual teenagers at this time. And she continues, I think that they liked that combination. The girls loved us because we were different. We followed our own style and didn't care what anybody thought. And then she goes on to say, the run into what girls wanted to be and what the guys dreamed about. And I think this is a really cool way of putting it and cool that she even recognized it because it's like, this was the first time that these punk groups are growing up listening to this type of music and also looking up to it as inspiration. Being like, they're both relatable and they're doing something different. They're pushing the boundaries. And I think that's where we start to see this direct connection of why, you know, they might be inspired to bring these elements into their own punk music. It's interesting interesting to think about because you mentioned before about how it wasn't really until like the mid 60s where musicians and artists started to get more comfortable with saying like okay I was inspired by this artist 10 years prior and it was around that time when the Beatles were like be able to talk about that oh they were super inspired by girl groups whereas when punk came around which was only about like 10 years after the British invasion around 1975 where Punk kind of started because a lot of these bands were tired of rock and roll radio being, you know, all this easy listening kind of stuff, like the Carpenters and Billy Joel and all that. So they went back through their influences and they were just like, we're just going to make it harder, brasher, faster. But they're still looking to things that were pretty soft, i.e. girl group. And, you know, it just led to the way that they were able to take the sounds and like the iconography and like the image of everything at the time and just make this new genre of music, punk, that seemed so far removed from girl groups but actually when you listen to it side by side there's like pretty strong connections between the two yeah so one of the things that really stood out to me when we were talking about things and going over notes was that you paired the ronettes and the ramones together and just to give a little bit more context to the ronettes they signed to phil Spector's label he's the man who's responsible for the wall of sound he's very famous producer and songwriter over the years working with a lot of different artists and this is why ronnie eventually married him became ronnie Spector. We even talked about their very messy relationship together in our episode called The Most Exploitative Men in Music. But it is interesting that even within the context of someone like Phil Spector producing them, they were still able to bring their own grit to it. And this NPR article also mentioned how Ronnie's voice was very unique. She had this kind of like gritty growl to it that was different from some of the other girl groups. And that also was a big inspiration for like the punk movement. But I think it's interesting that the British invasion and the girl groups overlapped a lot. And I didn't even realize this until you put the timelines together but in 1964 the Ronettes toured in the UK and the Rolling Stones opened for them the Rolling Stones opened for the Ronettes and then you also have later in 1966 when the Beatles came to the US the Ronettes opened for the Beatles so it's really interesting that there is this huge overlap there and then it's not until 1974 so about 10 years later when the Ramones are formed and that they actually go on to work with Phil Spector who produces one of their albums it was 
their most popular album and the Ramones highest charting song in Great Britain was a cover of the Ronettes Baby I Love You. And so it's really ironic, Kurt, with what you were saying that punk is like taking elements that they like from the girl groups and making it their own. But the Ramones really wanted to be this heavier, like hard hitting band. But it's funny that their most popular music was the music that was a little bit more toned down, a little bit more girl group-esque. Yeah, I think it's funny, especially when you listen to a lot of like the early Ramones tracks on their first self-titled album, there's songs like Sheena's a punk rocker and I want to be your boyfriend, which is like you do it and like you can't even deny like it sounds like they're trying to be a girl group. Just like the way that the music flourishes and the guitars go and like they're very much trying to make this wall of sound deal. Like again, they have the background vocals going with like these very simple lyrics that do seem like very heartfelt and raw, just like, you know, the whole teenage girl diary vibe from the girl groups so it's like something that was like always a part of their formula it was just like such a foundational basis for punk rock like the Ramones are one of the first punk bands hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels so whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Even though punk grew to be like a lot more hardcore and be like so much more after that, like this era of New York 1974 CBGB's era took so much from the girl group era. The other thing that is so crazy to really think about is the girl groups of like the 90s and 2000s were very planned and plotted and like very much used as the way for the music industry to make money in a lot of ways and so I feel like a lot of people in sort of our age range when they think of girl groups they think of like consumerism a lot Whereas these girl groups of the 50s and 60s were, as we said, like related or friends or had this whole vibe where it it felt more realistic, I think. And it seems like that was really intriguing to a lot of people was that they felt like they could be them or that they were similar to some extent. But this connection of the Ramones, the Ronettes is so wild to me because they on paper look so removed from each other but like you said especially with like Sheena is a punk rocker like that vibe of that song it feels so reminiscent to the storytelling of these girl groups and like the way that they would sing about rebellion and being young and just crushes and that whole thing and it's just really interesting like contextualizing it now where when I first heard that song by the Ramones it feels like that but I don't know that and now that I know it I'm like oh my god that makes so much sense but the other thing that was really interesting was there was actually an article on Riot Fest's website by this woman called Annie Fell in 2018, which is just called Is Be My Baby the First Punk Song Ever? So Be My Baby is by the Ronettes. And basically what this article is about is how the song is very like 
flirty and doesn't really feel like what was expected of women at that time, especially women of color and them being so comfortable and okay with singing about these feelings. I mean, the song even reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100 at the time. Dick Clark even called it record of the century during American Bandstand. And the Ramones were super inspired, as we said, by the Ronettes and by this song, even so much so that they decided to pretend that they were brothers. So as anybody who listens to Ramones or knows anything about them knows that they all would be like, oh, like Joey Ramone, Johnny Ramone, like all of that, even though that wasn't actually what was going on. And so they were super inspired by that. And I just think it's just so funny that they were so blatant about it when I feel like for so long, it's like, oh, girls can't do music or the whole preconceived idea of like women don't belong in music and even Debbie Harry has talked about a bit how I mean she said that it's never affected her but that she saw it affecting other people which I think is just, just really funny me no no not at all sometimes when she opens her mouth I'm just like Debbie but she's like, oh, like, I didn't have this issue. But like, I can see how you would think that women in punk weren't accepted. And so I think it's just funny her saying that because I guess in a way with how much the Ramones were emulating the Ronettes, it's like maybe they all were feminists by accident. And it's just <laughs> funny because even later on in life, Ronnie actually even collaborated and became close friends with Joey Ramone in like the late 90s. So <laughs> it's just like this a full circle thing where these really stereotypical typical punk dudes were so enamored by these women and so inspired by them and took so much of what they were doing into their own careers and I just feel like that's so beautiful because so many bands of kind of like gross misogynistic dudes specifically like the Sex Pistols refer to the Ramones as one of their huge inspirations and it's like yeah but do you know where the Ramones got everything they do from? Women. (laughs) And so while we are talking about these incredible black girl groups, we also have the Shangri-Las who I feel like, at least for me, because I never knew what they looked like, I just assumed that they were black because all the other girl groups of the time were. And so I was like, oh, white women would never. Yeah. just because of also just like the preconceived idea of like what white women were doing at this time, which was very much being kind of step 40 in <laughs> like housewives of it. But yeah, so we have the Shangri-Las who are this white girl group who are made up of two sets of sisters, which I think is, again, really interesting and intriguing because we always think of girl groups of something that was created in a lab. And these were just two groups of sisters who were friends and were like, let's make music together. And so they formed when they were in high school and they were truly teenagers like their parents signed their record deal they couldn't because they were all under 18 so we have Mary and Betty Weiss and then Marge and Marianne Gasner who were twins and so when they signed their record deal with Redbird Records in 1964 Mary was 15, Betty was 17, and then the Ganser twins were 16. And I feel like that speaks a lot to the lyricism and the themes that were in their songs, because a lot of these things were like truly leaning into this idea of teen rebellion, which again, as we said in the beginning of this, was such a new idea. And there was this really incredible essay that I found in doing research for this, which I just was like so blown away by, which was called Rebel Redux, The Shangri-La's Girl Rebellion and the Cold War, 
which was on the site called hypothesis.org by this girl called Emma Louise St. Amand. And it was like a college essay because it was written for Eastman School of Music, which is in Rochester, New York. And it was truly this really intriguing article, basically with the thesis of the Shangri-Las were singing about the girl rebel idea, which wasn't something that was fully a thing that people were aware of because it was this well-documented Cold War cultural trope of like the boy rebel. So it's like rebel without a cause with James Dean, like this whole idea of like the boy with the leather jacket and a motorcycle, which the Shangri-Las do sing about in their song Leader of the Pack. But basically what her idea is, is that actually the Shangri-Las themselves are singing about female rebellion and this idea of them having to come to terms with being rebels and what that means to their family and how most of their most popular songs lead into the death of somebody that they love based off of either them stopping rebelling or continuing to rebel, which is just really dark. But I think that these are themes that we have seen continued throughout time in female lyricism of just the unexpected darkness of the female mind, which I think is just this really beautiful thing. (laughs) Like the Dixie Chicks and that one song about murdering their exes? Goodbye, Earl. I mean, I'm thinking in like the Sylvia Plath direction, but also that of just like this really dark, twisted idea of people not wanting to admit that women can be really kind of fucked in the head in a lot of ways because there is that idea of just like girls are supposed to be prim and proper. They're supposed to be making a home. They're supposed to be homemakers. They're supposed to be doing all these things. And then you have these girl groups coming out. And as we've been saying earlier, it's like the Ronettes and the Shangri-Las took a lot from the Shirelles, but they were even just a couple years later and this rebel movement is very much happening of going outside the norms of what society expects from you and what your parents expect from you and then they're singing their feelings truly pulled from a diary excerpt and the Shangri-Las are referred back to as inspiration for countless punk bands as well as rock bands throughout time. I think it's important to note that when we're looking at the timeline of girl groups, I mean they were all very influenced by the Shirelles but if the Ronettes were able to look at the Shirelles and be like, this good girl image you're going for, let me tweak that a little bit with their outfits and their hair. And I feel like the Shangri-Las just did what the Ronettes did like tenfold because their rebellion was like a lot more obvious. There's actually a video of Ellie Greenwich, who was a songwriter in the Brill Building. She worked with Jeff Barry. One of her credits is for the song Leader of the Pack. And she's just like talking about when she first meets them and they're just, you know, chewing their gum and they have like an attitude and they have runs in their stockings. And apparently that was enough to be like, oh, these are some bad girls. Like, don't want to <laughs> mess with them. But then that's something you can totally hear in their songs like Leader of the Pack is, you know, she's like, my folks are always putting him down. They don't like it. They don't like that we're together. They don't like that I love him, but like I love him anyway. And then he mm-hmm. ends up dying. And then they also have other songs that are like, you know, similarly kind of melodramatic and really passionate in like that way that only the unbridled teen ego can do. Like, I can never go home anymore, which is mostly spoken word about her being like, okay, I told my mom I'm gonna run off with this guy and then the guy didn't love her anymore. And like, she's like, I can't go home anymore. I'm homeless. It's like very melodramatic. Is that Past, Present, and Future is another one of their songs where they're just like, this isn't just a phase, mom. Like, this is my life. (laughs) Oh my God, they were original. It's not a phase, mom. (laughs) They were. The Shangri-La started it all. It was not just a phase. Another thing that I found out on their Wikipedia that I thought was funny is that 
that they definitely had this like tough girl persona and part of it was because they grew up in like a rough neighborhood of Queens and there was a rumor that Mary Weiss from the Shangri-Las was being investigated by the FBI for carrying a firearm across state lines and then also in her defense somebody said that she claimed that somebody was trying to break into their hotel which like I'll give her that because they're a young girl group like but it is funny that this Wikipedia write-up said whatever truth these stories may have had they were believed by fans in the 1960s and they helped cement the girl group's bad reputation so like even if it was just a rumor it's like oh you don't want to mess with them (laughs) she's carrying a firearm (laughs) rightfully so I guess and then from that, you know, after the Shangri-La's heyday and around like the mid 60s, their reign was like they had a lot of hits because they had like Remember Walking in the Sand, which actually featured a young Billy Joel on pianos. And, you know, these were all about like a two to three year span, roughly like by the 70s, the Shangri-La's were no more. But then when punk started around 1974, Blondie was also coming up in this CBGB's era in the same way that the Ramones were. And they were also heavily, heavily influenced by the Shangri-La's in particular. When we talk about the Shangri-Las and a lot of their songs, like The Leader of the Pack, all these songs feature these like sound bites that made these songs into like almost mini soap operas, kind of. Like how in Leader of the Pack, they have like the motorcycle sounds going. And then at the end, when her love interest dies in like a motorcycle accident, there's crashes and all these things. And there's dialogue, like spoken words. So it really made these songs into like these like tiny movies almost. And then Blondie really took influence from that on their self-titled debut album, opened with a song x offender which starts with like a similar kick drum pattern almost like be my baby but also has like a spoken word intro before it goes into like this again very 60s girl group like very ooze and like all these like background vocals and everything and also they had songs like little girl lies and in the flesh which was one of their first hits is very much in a similar vein of like this girl group very much a shangri-la's era and also blondie was known to cover the shangri-la song out in the street and there's like so many other connections like before blondie even started debbie harry was actually in a girl group that was like kind of like a parody girl group that came up in cbgb's at the time like they're super campy they're called the stilettos with rosie ross and edna gentile and debbie harry talks about in her memoir he was like very campy debbie was like the really punk one and the other two were more like actually like broadway kind of like established singers and they just made like this huge spoof on girl group but still you can still hear the connections between that and then their debut album the other thing is is that it's like debbie harry wasn't the only member of blondie who was excited about the shanger laws and their sound and would talk about how they were inspired by them and i feel like again this is the thing that i find so amazing about this and why i'm so excited that you're like let's talk about this is that these punk dudes (laughs) were so (laughs) pumped about these girl groups and i just love it i love it so much but so the drummer for blondie clem burke actually so there's this book called the downtown pop underground which is written by kembrew mcleod i think is how you say it and there is an expert on the book's website about basically how shangri-la's like impression on blondie in particular and so there's this quote from clem burke saying they had their black leather vests and their tight black leather pants and they sang give him a great big kiss they sang about dirty fingernails wavy hair and 
and leather jackets and things like that. And I just love how they're singing, like, because that was kind of like the guy, the cool guy fashion at that time. So they're not singing about something super outlandish, but they are kind of dressing in like a style that's not expected of women of the time and being open about their attraction to these kind of dirty greaser kind of guys. And these punk people who obviously are probably like 10-ish years younger than them, like Jenna mentioned earlier, grew up listening to this, then that fashion is even bigger. And so then it's like, oh my God, they were singing about me. Like I'm I'm the topic of these songs. And I feel like it's so interesting, again, how the contextualization of the times and the fashion and all that sort of play into things where when you're a kid, you're probably listening to these songs and you're like, this is really cool. And then as you develop your own true music taste and style or whatever, you can then go back to these songs you like, like we do even now and be like, oh my God, that's me. That's so punk when like punk didn't exist yet. And so you're creating kind of this narrative that wasn't 100% there, but definitely was like the beginnings of something. And then being like, look at that, like they created punk without even realizing it. And I just feel like that's so incredible and so amazing just how transcending music is and how much it is a trendsetter and (laughs) has so much power over so much stuff and it's just like the connections there's so many connections and every time I do (laughs) we do these episodes I feel like that meme photo of Charlie Day on It's Always Sunny with like his map and his strings like connecting all the stuff like that's that's what what my brain feels like because I'm like oh my god (laughs) You're getting so meta and I love it. I, I love how excited you are about it. It's getting me excited listening to you be excited. I love that you're also getting the connections that like, I'm just like, I don't know, my brain was always going like that too. So I love that we vibe. When you were talking about how, you know, in the Shangri-La song, give him a great big kiss and they're thinking about him having like greasy hair and dirty fingernails. Like I get the image of Noah Cyrus and little Zan a few years ago where like <laughs> Noah Cyrus looks so pretty and little Zan is just like, like on the side of her face (laughs) like it's just like this trope went around for decades i'm glad that like everyone was always for some reason attracted to like the dirty schlubby guys like we don't (laughs) have to explain it it's just a thing that happens (laughs) no shame that's the thing that i love about this and like having these discussions and doing this is like even in doing the research it's like the things slowly start to fall into place. But then even more as we're talking about it and discussing, they fall into place even more. And you're like, oh my God, there's all these intricate connections between all these things that really shows like why we're all so excited about music and discussing it. Because I feel like a lot on this podcast, we do talk about kind of like the oversight of things. And so this topic is really incredible because even though these women Because it's, again, the thing is, like, they were never forgotten, but they just weren't celebrated in the way they should have been. And so it's really incredible getting to have a discussion like this, where it's like these punk guys were kind of yelling from the rooftops about how inspirational these girl groups were and how important they were to their music and how even the women in punk were like, yeah, like, I'm really inspired by this. And so it's just this really interesting thing where, like, another topic we've discussed a lot or just, like, theme is the internalized misogyny of a lot of women, especially growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, because the tabloid sort of era teaching us to pit girl against girl. And I'm not saying that that didn't exist prior to the tabloids, but the tabloids really put that straight in front of our faces. And so when you think of something like punk, which feels so masculine and angry for them to be like we wouldn't have punk without these women and for even the women in punk to be like yeah the women who came before us paved the way 
I think it's just this incredible thing that I'm so thankful we now have the knowledge about because it's so important to look back and be like, look, they were proud of where their inspiration came from. They were proud of these women and excited to talk about them. And I just think that that's really incredible. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, when you were talking about them inventing punk without really realizing it, for context, at the time when punk was invented in the like early to mid 70s in New York, at the time, they didn't really have like much of a word for it. Punk was about the scene and the vibe as opposed to now where when you hear punk and you kind of think of like a certain sound and like even when you think of something that's very loud and brash and kind of grimy in a way. But at the time, punk was just, you know, do what you want. Like, punk was the Ramones, and it was Blondie, and it was the Buzzcocks, and all these bands that sounded so disparate, but still had the connection of, you know, just coming together at this one place in time. Yeah, I think, like, our generation is so far removed, obviously, from the era when this was happening. So it's like, when we look back, there's certain things that are remembered and certain things that are not. And even myself, like, I remember going into the history of rock class, expecting punk and rock to be one thing and then finding out it's something completely different and so like i totally understand what you're saying about punk of like you expect it to be this hard thing and it wasn't always that and i think also to your point sarah of it's like it's so cool that at the time they were recognizing these girl groups and giving them credit and i think it's just like one of those things that can fall through the cracks when we talk about music history of it was a long time ago and then it's like also the responsibility of journalists and music historians and what they pick and choose to include in textbooks and in summaries about these eras and so it is amazing that we're able to kind of highlight and pick up these pieces because even taking a history of rock class like we did not discuss this like whatsoever you know so it's those things of like what is remembered and what is less remembered and what is remembered by the general population so it it is interesting in that regard going back to talking about blondie and blondie's influence by the shangri-las their debut album was produced by Richard Goderer, who was also a very famous girl group songwriter. He wrote the song My Boyfriend's Back by the Angels and the original version of I Want Candy by the Strange Loves. And he also has fingerprints all over early punk bands. He produced Blondie's debut album. He worked with Richard Hell and the Voidoids on Blank Generation, which is like a seminal text in like the origins of punk. And even went on to produce the Go-Go's debut album, Beauty and the Beat, with songs like, you know, We Got the Beat and Our Lips Are Sealed. And Richard Goder actually continued to work well into the 21st century, as recently as throughout the 2010s with the band The Dum Dum Girls, who also are a more modern influence of them looking back on girl groups and punk rock and getting like these really close harmonies together and like really sweet melodies, but like like, a little bit, you know, grimier and dirtier. So it is interesting to see how somebody like him still has a major influence on music as recently as five years ago. All these connections and like interlocking players of genres is something that's really incredible because for me, for quite some time, I always felt like there was something missing in the fact that there wasn't a lot of like heavier music that had that kind of fun pop vocal stuff to it. I like I don't know how to explain it other than when Poppy started moving into the metal sort of pop realm of things where it's like this really amazing marriage of the two sounds because they do go together really well. And obviously like that's been proven by a lot of these punk bands that now it's clear as day have a lot of this connection. And now when you're talking about like producers and stuff and the role of producers in all of that is so important because even if the band is coming to you with 
like an already existing song and they're like we have everything put the producer still has input and still plays that role and that can not so much like fully change the sound completely but just like add this other twang to connect genres and inspiration. And an example that comes to mind is that for the Josie and the Pussycats movie soundtrack, they had Babyface produce it. And so that album, while it sounds pop punk, it also has very like pop and like hip hop and all these other vibes to it. And even Pete Wentz from Fall Out Boy has talked about how he heard that and was like, we have to get Babyface to produce one of our albums because this sounds like somebody produced a pop punk album without ever hearing pop punk. And this is incredible. And then you had Infinity on High, which has very similar vibes to the Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack. And it was because they got Babyface on. And I know that he produced Thanks for the Memories. I'm not sure what other songs in the album he produced, but it's like this really incredible thing where you have these producers who have connections to other worlds that you have inspiration from. And you're like, how do I get this as part of what I'm making without being too obvious about it? And so you tying in that with Blondie and them working with that producer, like, I just think that... It's so cool how all this stuff comes full circle and connects and just shows how much of a role inspiration and music really does play and how that just kind of changes the whole trajectory of things and conversation and the tiebacks. And it's kind of like Easter eggs in music, which I think is just really incredible how everything really all goes back to these women who probably at the time just thought they were like having fun with their friends from high school, which I just think is incredible. Yeah, it's kind of a shame when you look back because like at the time there was like such a problem where these women were not really considered a huge part in all these songs that they were the voices of and like they really shaped music in that way. And there's so many references to like the girl groups not really getting the money that they deserve because they weren't really considered a part of the process. Even as recently as the 80s, there was a problem with somebody that was like claiming the Shangri-La's name and just giving it out to a bunch of just random women that would go out and perform as the Shangri-Las and like claim that they were the original ones. Oh my God. So that's kind of why this conversation was so important to me. Like you were saying before, it's like, you know, people have been talking about their influence of these girl groups on them for ages and they're still kind of just like talked over somehow. So yeah, making those connections, like it's very important to see like those fingerprints are all over music today. So my final question for you is you just said those fingerprints are all over music today. So what are some groups or girl groups that you kind of see this reflected in out of today's artists? Well, there was definitely like a few bands in like the early 2010s. There was like definitely a huge girl group revival with bands like the Dum Dum Girls that I just mentioned. There was a Best Coast and bands like Vivian Girls punks and his punks and shannon and the clams that sonically felt very influenced by this time like a lot of the close harmonies and the instrumentation like just felt very like classic rock and roll and then even today girl groups aren't really the same thing that they were 50 some years ago because a lot like we were saying before that girl groups do have this tendency to we have a idea that like they're manufactured and they're just brought in from all over you know with things like the Spice Girls and Girls Aloud but you know there's still influence in the sound itself like Pom Pom Squad their album Death of a Cheerleader that just came out earlier this year is also like super indebted to girl groups I'm pretty sure that the singer has like tweeted about like how much they love the Ronettes and Ronnie Spector and Pom Pom Squad is particularly important now because of how a lot of these 
a band that kind of came after girl groups were still like whitewashing the girl group era whereas the singer pom pom swan is mixed race and gets to i don't know reappropriate that vibe and like that whole sound that originally was considered race music at the time it was music by black people and immigrants and low-income kids so it's cool to see that it's still alive today with acts like that yeah definitely it's great i mean as sarah said it's so cool to see these connections trace throughout history even to today so kurt i just want to give a big thank you for joining us today we've loved this topic we've loved having you on as a guest so thank you it was so much fun thank you so much it's letting me like nerd out and make all these connections like i said i love girl groups for so long so this stuff's just been rattling my brain for like 10 plus years <laughs> so it's good that's to what we're here for <laughs> honestly yeah we love that you could bring this topic to us and we're gonna have links to all your social and your work as well in the description below so any of our listeners can check out that if they want to find more of your work we hope you guys enjoyed this wonderful history lesson today <laughs> oh my god I feel like we both had so many revelations. Um, Definitely. It's just funny when we're recording this and there's a video and I can see as we're talking, literally both of our brains connecting things. And it's just like, yes, it's so funny because obviously usually when you're having a discussion, you can't see what your facial expressions, <laughs> like how you react. And so it's just amusing watching as you see your brain doing the mental gymnastics to connect those strain ties to different parts of the music yeah. zeitgeist map. It's really funny, especially now that we've been doing the podcast so long that we know each other's expressions and like when we're about to have a thought and stuff, it's really funny. I know. I love it. We hope you guys had some similar thoughts and similar mind map connections happening just like we did. Yeah. I feel like they have to have. <laughs> like we've given them the building blocks. We did all the work. <laughs> we've laid the building blocks for the connections, which I think is just really incredible of doing the research for this episode and then talking to Kurt today is just like there were so many building blocks there that I don't think either of us really realized we had until we fully started researching and even more so when we started discussing. And I just love the idea of these girls who were just making music for fun having truly their fingerprints all over everything throughout all of music and it's just so it's so incredible yes some people are like oh my god like where would we be without the Beatles? but it's like where would we be without the shirelles like if girl groups did not exist if the shirelles did not exist half of the music we have today would not exist either jenna said this in a text earlier and it just felt like that scene in back to the future when marty mcfly starts like erasing from the photo because he's changed too much of the past by accident and so it's just like if you take away the shirelles nothing would we even have music i don't know probably maybe not yeah i was like what is the alternative timeline where the beatles are not as famous as they are because it feels very much like men co-opted the beatles Mm -hmm. and then they were like ah yes the only rock and roll band that has ever existed in the history of music and it's like okay but what if white men didn't have that much power and we could rewrite music history the way it should be oh my god well i mean that's the thing that's so funny is it's like all of these white men admittedly themselves, like these white musicians admitted themselves and would talk about it in interviews and stuff, like how inspired they were by these girl groups and specifically these women of color. And it's just so interesting how then like the fanboys erased that and took it away and were like, the Beatles came first. And so it's that thing where it's like, what would have happened if the girl groups hadn't existed? None of this music would ever have existed in general. So it's dumb for the fanboys to be doing that 
But then also on top of it, it's like, where is the timeline where the Shirelles and the Ronettes are the biggest groups in music as they should have been? Because that's what all these groups are like. This is where we came from. And so it's just kind of that thing of like the mother gives birth to the baby, but then it's like the father's son. And it's that same thing in music where it's like these women gave birth to this incredible music and they created this music, like obviously with the help of men, but also with the help of other women behind the scenes. And then random men 10 years later get given the props for it and so it's just quite interesting yeah very much is so i mean if you guys have any for you guys like did you know how important these girl groups were to the story because again it's like what we were saying it's like now that the dots are connected it's so obvious that punk took so much from these girl groups but before the dots were connected it's like that itch on your brain that you can't scratch where you're like where is this coming from so i mean had you guys connected the dots before is this a new exciting thing to go back and go listen to and hear for yourself and you can come tell us about all those fun things over on social media. We are at Name3Songs on Instagram and Twitter, and our DMs are always open. And if you have any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share with us personally, you can come find us on social media. I'm at Sarah underscore Fagan, and Jenna is at Jenna underscore Million. So thanks for joining us on Name3Songs. Until next time, never let anyone make you feel bad about your favorite band. And remember, you're never too cool to listen to the Ronettes. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when each episode comes out and leave us a five-star review. It really helps. If you want to find out more about any of the sources we referenced in this episode, you can visit namethroughsongs.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.